Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Sabbath day. And I ask that we come away with uh, just a better idea and a different glimpse of what daily life is really made of. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been gone a couple of weeks, um, been out of town. <clears throat> well, last week my mother preached in Fond du Lac, so we were down there. And prior to that, we were down, um, we actually went to Florida for about a week and a half. So it took us away for about, uh, for two Sabbaths. And I'll get back to that in a minute. But um, one thing I've been wanting to, to get better at over time is getting better at recognizing and remembering God's praises and, and blessings. And, uh, you know, as, as life goes on, as days continue, I'm always thinking about those things and thanking God for the little stuff in life. But um, <clears throat> from time to time, you're in a place maybe where uh, there's testimonies. People come up front and they talk about uh, stories in their lives, turnarounds, miracles. And I believe that God loves a good story. And so he fills our life full of them. But when I'm in those situations, I think, oh, what if they pick me? Who am I going to stay? <laughs> I never know. And I think to myself, well, that's pretty sad um, that I won't have anything to say, even though I praise them all the time for stuff. But uh, so I start recognizing things more that, uh, as a story. And uh, so I have a few things to tell you about well, the couple of weeks while we were gone. Uh, just before we left, the night before we left, um, we uh, played music at a place called Ever, Evergreen Retirement Community in Oshkosh. For those that don't know, I'm in a, a little band. You know Kevin Wilkinson and Clint Michelow and Paul Sinkamani and my brother Keith and I. And um, we're in a band we call Pickstrum. Pick Strum, kind of simple. We're a Christian bluegrass band and um, spelled P-I-X-T-R-U-M. So <clears throat> we like to play here and there. And so if you have a place that you're ever thinking of, maybe a, or whether it be a retirement community or whatever, we play at a cup of joy and, and we enjoy doing these things. But um, we, uh, we had gone to Evergreen. This is our first time ever. And it's neat, they have kind of a, a passage where you walk through, and all of a sudden there's kind of like an opening, and it's kind of their designated chapel area. And it's pretty neat, they have a little stage and a little altar there, and, and that's where they essentially go to church. So they all gathered around, and um, we weren't sure how it would go. You know, we hadn't played here before, we didn't know how they'd take it. You know, when you're up front, you never know how things feel from the audience and how it'll be received. So <clears throat> we uh, went ahead and played, and um, Kevin's songs, he, he writes most of the songs that we play. And uh, we always play a few originals that people would recognize, you know, like out of the hymn and stuff like that. And, um, and the words to his songs talk a lot about the good old days. And <clears throat> the people really bought into it. And uh, afterward, they came up and, you know, said, oh, what a good job and everything else. And you think, well, people say that to be nice and all that. But uh, we got back together a week or two later for practice. Um, Kevin told us that they, in fact, did love it and they wanted us to come back. And uh, it, was, it was neat. It's a blessing because... Um, in those songs that we play, it is it is Christian based. Um, you know, like I said, we consider ourselves a Christian bluegrass band, and some of Kevin's songs talk about um, listening to the gospel music show on Mama's radio and um, um, going to catch a train, make Jesus your engineer. Uh, from here to there, we're in Jesus's control. You know, you're, it talks about an old truck that's prone to weave and wander, but with Jesus at the wheel, it's just enough to get to he- from here to there. So, but it's really neat after all those songs um, and the way Kevin interacted with the crowd, they're answering questions, and, and it's all, it just all really fit together. So it was a real blessing that, that um, they had asked for us back and um, when we weren't sure how that was all going to go. Uh, the trip that we went on, we drove down to Florida, which uh, I like driving on kind of long trips. Probably the furthest I've driven was 
Colorado, 18, 19 hours. It's, it's just shy of a Florida drive, but we'd never driven down that direction before, and we had debated what, what vehicle to take. And so I decided that um, uh, we, would, we would take my car. My car is about 16 years old, so I wasn't sure about that at first. And typically when we take my car, we put four people in it and, uh, and stuff for four people for a couple of days, and the, and the back tends to bottom out a little bit. You see the springs are a little worn out. And I said, I don't know if I want you guys bumping along in the back. Probably be uncomfortable for a long drive like that. And I, I asked Judy, I said, uh, well, what do you think? And she said, well, it wasn't too bad. It's only once in a while we hit a bad bump. And I said, okay, so you guys could survive it because, well, you know, I'm driving, so I don't have to care too much. I do care, but I don't have to worry about the bumps, right? And, uh, but they do, so I want to make sure they're comfortable. And she said, yeah, it wasn't too bad. And I said, well, you know, so it'd be all right if we took it down to Florida, you think? She said, yeah. And... Um, I said, well, good, because that was my only worry. I figured the car was, uh, the Lord had got along as far as it had all this time. And so uh, to alleviate that, I had come up with a brilliant idea. I was going to take some, some weight out of the back of the trunk. <clears throat> and so I did, and, the wife, and uh, Judy came out, and she said, how's it going, honey? I was out there getting the car ready, and she was waiting for me to have the car ready to start putting things in it the day we were going to leave. And uh, I said, it's going good. I said, I got a good idea. I said, I'm all worried about the weight in the back. And I said, I took some out that saved about 40, 50 pounds. That's like two suitcases or another third of a person. She goes, yeah, what's that? I said, well, I took out the spare tire. <laughs> so you all feel like she did, I guess. <laughs> yeah, she said, uh, do you think you should put that back in there? I said, well, I took it out with a prayer. And uh, I said, you know, the Lord got me along in this car this long, and I've never had a flat tire ever. And uh, I took it out prayerfully and, uh, and did that. And what do you think happened? Absolutely nothing. So, <laughs> so as I've been telling everyone, we drove all the way down there. Uh, the drive down there was perfect. The stay there was perfect. Beautiful weather. The drive back was perfect. And... Um, just as we crossed the Florida border on the way down, uh, within about three minutes or so after that, my car had crossed 265,000 miles. And so um, everyone at work thought I was crazy and all that stuff, but um, a real blessing there. Um, so the Lord's really been with us, and um, I was happy to be able to bring back uh, some of those stories and just um, realize things that we kind of go through life and, and you kind of don't pick them out as is miracles, but really that car shouldn't have made it down there and back. And uh, I'm certainly, great, certainly grateful it made it down uh, without any flat tires, because so, I might have heard about that one for a little while after. But um, phenomenal overall. Well, um, the main message of today's sermon, the title was, well, I didn't really have a title, but I just came up with one when I walked in the door, and Andy wanted me to put a title on it, so we had something on the screen and uh, somebody could name the file with. But uh, I chose to name it Love Your Enemy, it could have been love thy neighbor. It could have been um, true power. And um, you might relate to that as we, as we go through this. So I wanted to ask, how many of you have enemies? A couple of you raised your hands. Well, the couple that raised their hands don't feel guilty. You're probably like, oh my, well, am I a good Christian if I have enemies? And uh, really, you should take a look around and look at all the people who didn't raise their hands. They're all liars, okay? So they bear false witness, though they're... You're doing better off than they are. No. Well, why don't we like thinking that we have enemies? Well, we have Christian hearts, right? We don't like to think we have enemies. We have, we have people that do things. We have things that we get irritated with, but, um, you know, we feel we want to work with them. But 
I think there might be a little trouble in, in not recognizing that we, that we do have enemies. Well, what are enemies? Can anyone tell me what you might consider an enemy? Satan, that's a very good one. Yes. If you can see them, they're not your enemy. If you can see them, they're not your enemy. That's very good. That's a very good one. Um, pull up the definition, because I like to do that. A person who is actively opposed or hostile to someone or something, or a hostile nation or its armed forces or citizens, especially in time of war. An enemy or foe is a relativist term for an entity, whether an individual or a group, that is seen as forcefully adverse or threatening. The concept of an enemy has been observed to be basic for both individuals and communities. The term enemy serves the social function of designating a particular entity as a threat, thereby invoking an intense emotional response to that entity. We know about that. The state of being or having an enemy is enmity, foehood, or foeship. Enemy is a strong word, and emotions associated with enemy would include anger, hatred, frustration, envy, jealous, fear, distrust, and possibly grudging respect. As a political concept, an enemy is likely to be met with hate, violence, battle, and war. Generally, the counterpoint to an enemy is a friend or an ally. Although the term frenemy, you ever heard the term frenemy? You guys ever use that? Frenemy has been recently coined to capture the sense of a relationship where the parties are allied for some purposes and at odds with one another for other purposes. That's a frenemy, if you, if you knew there was such a thing. So how do we handle enemies? Do we have any idea? Well, I suppose now you had enemies, so how would you know, right? You haven't had any practice doing any of that. So, um, well, I don't know. Let's, uh, let's have a look at Exodus 20. Ten commandments. You probably know them off the top of your head. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. What's, what's the first commandment? Right. Should I have no other gods before me? We know that the first four commandments deal with our relationship with God, and the last six deal with our relationship with one another. Isn't that right? So, the commandments go. No gods, this is the Lord speaking, you guys should have no other gods before me. Second family, you shouldn't have any gods after me either. Shouldn't take my, Lord, my, my name in vain. The fourth, we know why we're all here. The Sabbath, special day, God's appointment time with you and me. And about the rest, what's the next one? I don't hear any kid. I know that, that's, that's a pretty good one. You might not know that now. Uh, honor thy father and mother. Next one, thou shalt not commit adultery. Next. Next, and next to your neighbor, you shouldn't kill your neighbor, murder, steal from your neighbor. What's the definition of a neighbor? How do we handle a neighbor? The Bible doesn't talk about enemies. Let's see what a neighbor is. One who believes, I'm sorry, one who lives near, or, no, they live over there. Uh, to me, they had to be next door. You're next door neighbors or you weren't neighbors. Uh, a person, is that who God's talking about? Neighbors? Anybody? So how do we handle our neighbors? Well, we read a little bit in the Ten Commandments. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? 
And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than anybody else? Don't even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we dealt with the enemies. It's in here. Can you believe it? You'd have to act that way to somebody who you may have a disagreement with. By the way, he references in that verse um, a text in Leviticus 19.18. You want to turn there with me, please? Leviticus 19, verse 18. Short one, Leviticus nineteen eighteen. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What do you think he's talking about there? Enemies or neighbors? Very good. Could be both. Do you think that one could essentially be the same as the other? I think Jesus saw something there when he said, you may have heard, you know, love thy neighbor and hate your enemy. And I'm telling you to love your enemy. In other words, treat them the same as a neighbor. I think he detected, like I'm sure we're understanding, that at times we probably separate them as two different classes of people, don't we? Well, we have our friends, and then we have our people who are not. We have enemies, and we have our neighbors. Well, a neighbor, as we said, is one who lives near us or is adjacent to us, or a fellow human. So can enemies be neighbors? Can neighbors become enemies? It's all one and the same. And so, if he says, but love your neighbor as yourself, you think, you know, maybe some of us have low self-esteem and we don't really think of ourselves to love ourselves. I don't really love myself. I mean, you know, sounds kind of arrogant, maybe. I don't know. But we love ourselves enough to do what? We take care of our, our basic, you know, our bare essentials. We, we survive. There's certain things we do in love and care of ourself. We make sure we're fed. Well, I shouldn't say we make sure. The Lord makes sure we are fed. But we struggle, right? When we start feeling hungry, we start scrambling a bit. Oh, we need some food. We got to eat. We got to do something. When you're cold, your heat goes out in your house. Do you do nothing? No. You seek heat, warmth. You seek to fix that furnace, whatever it is. You care. You take care of those things. You love yourself. So then, once you do those things for your neighbor, love thy neighbor as yourself. We make sure that we go through life pretty satisfied. We buy ourselves things and, and do stuff, whatever it is that we do for ourselves, because we love ourselves. And so we should do those same things for our neighbor, who are also our enemies. When we were down in Florida, um, I don't know if you know a gentleman by the name of Dan Howell. He spoke down there, and uh, he wasn't the speaker but uh, he was doing announcements and kind of doing a, like an introductory thing. And, and he was telling a story about uh, he had gone to a gas station. And Dan, he, he did a really good job. He was really enthusiastic. He was up there, you know, moving around in front of the crowd and, and really passionate about it. And he said, you all know that I'm, you know, if you know me, you know that I'm a tightwad. I don't like spending money. You know, I don't like paying a dime over anything I have to. He's, he's really getting into it. And I pulled into a gas station. And by the way, for those who weren't around then, I kind of was when these things were still around. But... There's a gas station where you could pull up, and uh, you could either do self-serve, where you get out and pump the gas yourself, or an attendant could come out and do it for you. I believe there was an extra fee in there built into the price for that service. 
And so he pulled up to a gas station. The attendant came out and, um, and filled up his car. And remember, gas was really, really cheap back then, too. And so when the attendant was done, he said, all right, uh, that'll be $7, please. He just about fell out of his car. $7? Well, he didn't say anything to the man. He just told him the price and went back into the gas station. And uh, Dan, who was telling the story, he didn't have the money on him. So, well, first of all, this guy's trying to rip me off. He said, uh, and I don't have the money on me. It, it should never cost me that much. And so he said, I was all ready. I, I'm going to go in there and give this guy a piece of my mind, which I'm certainly capable of doing. And I went in there. And uh, I went on to tell him that I didn't have the money on me. I don't, he said, I don't have the $7. And the guy said, uh, you can just come back when you have it and pay it later. Dan froze and he thought, you know, that's not something you hear from somebody who's trying to rip you off. And as he stood there dumbfounded, a smile spread across the man's face. He said, you don't know me, do you? He said, well, I, I don't know. And he said, uh, I, had, I had met you at church last week. So Dan was so glad the Lord withheld him, held him back from going in there and giving this man a piece of his mind, which he was certainly capable of doing, and uh, spared himself from that. How often do we do that? Um, so enemy, I'm going to ask you that question again. Let's change the word a little bit, though. Enemy's kind of harsh. It seems to have kind of a permanent resonance, doesn't it? If somebody's your enemy, that's just what they are. They're an enemy, and that's it, you know. Sometimes we get along, sometimes we don't, but all in all, they're, they're an enemy of mine. But sometimes in order to understand something fully, to really, to really absorb it, you know, we say these things over and over, there's verses we repeat, there's, yeah, yeah, we need to be like Jesus, yeah, always, yeah, treat our enemies and neighbors all the same, all friendly. And, but just like a project or any goal that you have, something big that, that, that involves several components and several steps, it's always important to break it down into small actions, isn't it? For example, you're going to remodel your house, or maybe you want to get your bachelor's degree this year, whatever it is. You'd sit down and maybe look at the room and say, okay, I'm going to need this. I'm going to need a wheelbarrow to haul it all out when I'm done gutting it. I'll need some uh, drywall, some screws, some insulation. You, you know, you break it down steps. So I need to get these things. Then, you know, you set a goal. You break it apart, and then you know really what it means. Oftentimes, we get into projects, don't we, gentlemen? And we're like, wow, I didn't realize how big of a deal this would be. The wife's all upset because it's taken more than a couple weeks or whatever. And, you know, now we're trying to get it done. I don't think it'd be that big of a deal. You know, who needs instructions? Who needs to plan? You just do it, right? But uh, so you need, you need to break it down sometimes to the nuts and bolts and see what this stuff is made of. So I want to kind of materialize, make real what maybe an example of an enemy is. At first, it was just a gentleman, a neighbor, coming out to pump his gas for him. By the time he wouldn't have even considered himself an enemy to Dan, but Dan thought he was. Simple as that. You have in front of yourself somebody who is opposed to you. Somebody who you've developed an emotional and our fleshly desire to want to do something in return. Let them know that you're not going to be walked on, stomped on, or overcome. Let's see the question again. If we define an enemy, like I said, changing the word a little bit, let's call that on a daily basis, just, you know, going about your merry way, working or whatever it is. How many of you say you have character in your life? Ah, there's some more hands. Friends at risk, character builders every day. We need to. Um, in our quarterly, as many of you know, we're, we've been studying um, uh, the roots of uh, the origin, basically creation, and our stance on where we came from. And uh, it prompted my mind to think of uh, maybe another type of enemy. And again, enemy is a strong word. You don't have to think of these people that you always have to oppose them as people. They have differing views, but you need to handle them like your neighbor. 
So let's take, for example, evolutionists. I've had conversations with a couple, um, a couple of my work with, and, um, and as you know, those can be difficult. Conversations with anybody that's disagreeing with you on anything can be very difficult. And, um, and oftentimes, they're very, they, I shouldn't say, that's why I said oftentimes, not majority of the time, not everybody's like this, but oftentimes, they can um, get a little arrogant on you and kind of start poking fun at you, like you're unintelligent. How can you not believe science? You have a closed mind. How, how, can, you not, how can you not want to believe science? You, you, you just want to believe what you want and, and ignore all the facts and details that we have that evolution must be true. And we have all sorts of things, right? That we have all sorts of facts that we stand on. And uh, I'm going to go over some examples just for fun. Uh, by the way, I want to thank our good man, Brian Brown. <clears throat> Have you ever heard of the book, Ultimate Proof of Creation? It's a great book. It's where I got a few of the facts that I'm going to rattle through just as some, as, uh, some examples. But uh, just a wonderful book by uh, Dr. Jason Lyle. Um, helping give us reason and understand that there is, in fact, science that backs creation. We all know that. It, is, it becomes ever more obscure as time passes, unfortunately. But maybe if you're having a discussion with, say, an evolutionist, perhaps could take a different approach. It's very easy when they start in on you, say, that, um, you know, to get into an argument. To say, well, certainly, you know, this is this and that is that and, and you know, what you believe, there's no way that could be possible. Like, oh, yeah? Well, how about this? You know, it, it, right away it can get into a, you know, especially if there's an audience. You don't want to look like you're inferior. And certainly we have innocent reasons why we debate and argue, because we want to defend our God and our beliefs. But you know, you're never going to convert anybody in an argument. It doesn't matter if you're talking about sports, religion, or whatever it is. Once you're in an argument or a debate, nobody's getting converted there. You're going to come away thinking, that, well, that was a bunch of weak points he made. I showed him a lesson or whatever it is. But you're never going to come away with something like that, perhaps could take a different approach. I'll talk about it in just a minute. But just going through some brief facts. Uh, in information science, there's no known law of nature, process, or sequence of events that can cause information to originate by itself in matter. When progress is traced backward, every piece of it leads to a mental source or the mind of a sender. And so we look at DNA. DNA contains information. Information always traces back to the mind of a sender. That couldn't happen in, say, the Big Bang Theory and evolution. We have things like that. These are just examples of things that we stand on. Scientifically, information is a coded message containing an expected action and intended purpose. God and creation, the way he made us, the way he made ourselves, DNA, all of that. It contained a coded message and had an intended purpose. Cells are irreducibly complex. You say what? Irreducibly complex. Complex means that something has a certain complexity that if you reduced it, it wouldn't exist. In other words, it couldn't evolve gradually. It's either there or it's not. Tony Robley gave a good uh, message several weeks ago about how animals had certain features that they couldn't develop slowly. If they used this mechanism improperly just once, it would destroy the animal, and it couldn't possibly evolve into a better animal. It would cease to exist right there. They call that irreducible complexity. Radiocarbon dating, they would argue, is how they determine things could be billions of years old to allow all these things time to happen. When C14, the most popular use of radiocarbon dating, it decays to an undetectable amount after 100,000 years. So how after that could it be used to accurately determine time? However, we both have rescue devices. 
by now, you know, we've stated a few of these things. You're deep into an argument, and you end up backing them into a rescue device. For example, comets only last about 100,000 years. What's a comet? It's something that passes around, passes through space, and it passes in front of the sun. <laughs> and boom, it collides with something. No. After passing by the sun several times, it's basically made of dirt and ice, and so it begins to melt, and that peels off starts to melt away, and, and the comet wears out, and the tail behind it is that, is that material burning off of it. And because of that, it's only possible for a comet to last about 100,000 years, they estimate, which supports a younger Earth rather than billions of years. And so a rescue device, as I just mentioned, maybe an evolutionist would propose, in fact, they have an Oort cloud. Jan Oort invented an Oort cloud, which is basically a sphere of material and matter around our universe that's too far away for us to see right now, but once in a while, one of these matters of dirt gets dislodged, thrown into our atmosphere, and that's why we still have new comets. See, if the Earth was billions of years old, we wouldn't have comets anymore. They all burnt out in the first 100,000 years, right? But that is their, their rescue device. But you see, you know, we stand on, on faith that God is, a, is our creator. Maybe we haven't have a faith just like they have a faith. They have a faith that something is out there that maybe they've not yet seen. And so an approach you could take when somebody is opposing you, an enemy, whether it be an argument over something, over a possession, in the example of evolution, or somebody who is proposing to be an enemy there, rather than saying, oh yeah, but how about this? Maybe you'd say, ah, you know, the issue I have with that is this. Or the issue I have is it doesn't make sense to me because we have this evidence of that. You know, more of a, yeah, see, I struggle with that because... It's a lot less offensive, isn't it? Again, just an example of how to, how to handle someone differently. I'm sure in Bible studies you've run across that. People, you know, we have differing views, and, and they have what they feel are evidence or proof texts of certain things. And, and rather than telling them, you're wrong, or, or no, I know this is right because of such and such, maybe turn to a, like you said, more, more personal. Instead of pointing at them, say, I, I just have troubles with that because of, because of this. I just, I, that doesn't work in my mind. And then at least maybe they might be open to, hmm, and they might start thinking as well and understand that they can, they can reason with this stuff and not necessarily have to be against you, but just think more, research more, study more, and eventually they might come around. But that's just one example, like I said, of handling our enemies. And we learn that enemies can be anybody. It's anybody that frustrates you, anybody who's opposing you at a time. You might not feel threatened, like by gunpoint. You might not feel threatened with your life or your family but you feel threatened by your views or you, f you feel that your views are threatened, your position in any, any given time might be threatened, whether it be an idea at work or a family disagreement. For a time, they're taking the, opposing, the opposing side, the enemy's side, but they're not enemies forever. You don't have to treat them as though you're never going to like them ever again. They're all our neighbors after all, aren't they? But we're called to do battle. We're called to do battle with our enemy, and who's that? Overall, in the great controversy, there's two sides. Who's, who's our enemy? Yes, the devil is our enemy, but how do we do battle? How do we do battle with one another? Through Jesus as our example, maybe? Countries and political figures, they do war through battle. We know what war is all about. Weapons, intimidation, misinformation. Christians can do battle too, but Christians have a special way that we're supposed to do battle, aren't we? And we read the text where Jesus told us just how to do it. Your enemies are your neighbors. 
And the Lord told us how to treat our neighbors. Jesus is our example. We rely upon God. I challenge you this week, maybe this Sabbath, to think of somebody who's been a character builder. Maybe a friend at risk and pray for them. It's a humbling experience and it's extremely powerful. Say a prayer and wish good upon them. Chances are there's a reason. Just like you in your position, you have a reason why you think the way you do. I think they're wrong because of this. Well, they think you're wrong because they have a good reason too and they really feel that you're in the wrong. So maybe say a prayer. Pray to God to ask them with whatever struggle it is they're going through. Maybe they're short on money. Maybe they just had a fight with somebody else. Maybe their family life isn't going well. Maybe they're just not seeing, maybe they are in the wrong and they're just not seeing clearly. But you pray for them, hoping that if nothing else, that in the end, they see that you treated them like Jesus would have. That's true power. As we read in the text, as our scripture reading, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, in our weakness. Therefore, I will boast of all, all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for helping us identify today who our neighbors and enemies are. We find out, Lord, that they're one and the same. Lord, we want to turn anyone who we perceive as an enemy into just a friendly neighbor. Lord, be with us that we deal with these people properly as you would show us in your example. And Lord, give us power over our enemies by giving us power over ourselves to follow you and do the Christ-like thing and show these people that, hey, we're going to think differently, but we love one another anyway, and we take care of you. Thank you, Lord, for the Sabbath day that we get to spend with you and soak in these principles, calm down from the week, and refresh on who you are and where we need to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.